Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and mental well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are basically friendly tribal animals who are cooperative. We like hanging out with one another. We like doing things together, whether it's eating or a tea party or a sewing circle or playing golf or going to ball games. I mean, you name it. Look at all the things that we just love doing together. Families love getting together. We're basically cooperative. And if you look at small towns around the United States, you'll see how much cooperation there really can be. But at the very same time, we have to acknowledge that a very small percentage of we humans are very different. A very small percentage of us are avaricious predators. They have a very different view of life than the rest of us. Instead of collaboration and cooperation, they believe in top-down dictatorial policies. They would prefer that the country is a dictatorship or an autocracy or run by an oligarchy. They are not interested in democracy and a republic the way the rest of us are. And so we must stay awake. We must stay aware and protect this fragile democracy and republic that we have because we are still a beacon to the world as we have been for over 200 years. Keep in mind that we were the first group in almost 2,000 years to throw off the shackles of being subjects of a king who could dismiss us and kill us with with the movement of a finger. And we became citizens. We must stay aware and keep this democracy. In the words of my hero, or one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. With us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm pleased to have Heather Lee. Heather Lee is one of the first certified psychedelic psychotherapists in the United States. And we're going to find out right now what that means, how she got it, and more about Heather's life. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Heather. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. And I always love your opening. It always kind of just stirs the soul and gives you that sense of, you know, just really reminding ourselves that we really do need to stay so vigilant for these incredible rights that we have here in this country. Isn't that the truth? And it's so easy. So much of my life, Heather, I took the rights for for granted. I just sort of thought we're always going to have them. And I've come to the realization that that's not the case. We've got to work to keep our rights. Absolutely. It's not like, yeah, it's not like because somebody gave them to us over 200 years ago, we have them forever. It's not a permanent contract, right? Right, right. Well, my very first job out of college was working for Planned Parenthood. And, you know, I really just assumed that having access to, you know, choices about our bodies and reproductive rights was something that we had you know, fought long and hard for and that we, you know, we'd earned that right. And there was no way there'd be a rolling back of that right. And yet we're seeing that. And so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of scary times for, for women, for trans, for gay people, for, you know, people of color. I mean, it's, it's, there's some, I didn't come on here to, to talk politics, but there's some things that are happening that, you know, they do give us pause because as you said, we are at our core pro-social and compassionate and kind and loving creatures and beings. And we should be working in a collaborative fashion for the betterment of, you know, all of us to live happy, healthy, productive, safe, secure lives. I'm very pleased to hear what you're saying. Remember, although you're a health professional, you did come on a program that's called Mind, Body, Health and Politics. Yeah. And, And politics. And so I welcome hearing your politics. I want to know from you, a female leader, how you feel about the overturn of Roe versus Wade. What did that do to you, Heather? Well, you know, I think it's easiest for us to sort of take for granted. You know, this hasn't been rolled back for all that long. We're going to start seeing the horror stories of perfectly healthy women, some of who are maybe people who voted to roll these rights back, that if your pregnancy suddenly goes, you know, something goes on and there's, you know, 
you're in a dangerous situation for your health or the health of your baby or your baby dies inside you, you might have to die as well. I mean, there people don't even realize how really the implications of what these laws mean and how this might look. And, you know, interestingly, I spent some of my lifetime in my career working in hospice. So I sent, sat at the bedside of many very elderly people listening to their life journeys. And I remember speaking to women who had been around, you know, long before we had access to birth control and safe and legal abortions, talking about how women didn't have choices about having careers or, you know, even having, you know, say over whether they did or didn't get pregnant. I mean, this used to be things that were just put upon us and we had no control. It has so completely changed the landscape of women's lives to be able to have autonomy over when they do and don't have children, how they do or don't have safe pregnancies. And all of those things have been, you know, many of those things have been rolled back. And I, I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg as far as what that really the implication is going to be for women's health and safety. So what, what you're saying, Heather, is that an untold number of women will be forced to carry babies and then raise the babies that they didn't want to begin with, which not only puts them in the awkward position of having something that they're going to want to love, but they didn't really want, but will stop them from going into the workforce for a certain and having a career to a certain extent. Right. The financial implications are, you know, really astronomical, especially for, you know, women in different socioeconomic classes for whom this is going to really create a lot of burden and hardship. Must be. It would be interesting to talk. How long has it been since you've been with Planned Parenthood? A long time. Yeah, that was my very first job out of college back in what nineteen eighty. Oh, it is a long time. Eighty four. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So we we don't know. We don't have inside scoop from you on how they're feeling about this whole thing. Yeah. You mentioned before the program. I'm going to switch topics yeah. and get off that tough one for a minute. Thanks. You mentioned before the program that you're presently in a small town in Vermont, and I want to spend just a few minutes, not a lot of time, but let's hear a bit about living in a small town in Vermont. I'll share with you, if you like, what it's like living in a small town in uh, Northern California. Because you live in a town that's what a thousand. Well, I'm just I'm passing through. I'm not living here. It's a it's a temporary stay. But I have spent some of my life living in Vermont, and you know I always love coming to Vermont because, you know, there are the parts of Vermont that I, I'm right now. I'm right outside of Dorset, Vermont, and some of these little towns in New England, and particularly in Vermont, you know, there are no big box stores. There are no strip malls. I mean, it's really just such quintessential old world New England. And and I love that because so many places in America have all been, you know, sort of homogenized to look the same and have the same stores and the same feel. So it's lovely to be in an actual little village in New England. I just, I love that. I see. And what's your home base if you're passing through? Do you have a home base nowadays? Well, there's a whole podcast for you there, Richard, because it's usually right outside Boulder, Colorado and Superior, Colorado, which we might all know oh. is the place that the firestorms went through. Um, yes. So we, my husband and I actually rented our house out for a year and we are doing this incredible year of vagabonding. We spent three months in Portugal. We have a sprinter van and now we're really traveling around and doing just a lot of traveling. And because I do work like this and I work remotely, we can be anywhere. So, and it ties into what I believe we're going to talk about later, which is my breast cancer and psilocybin journey. And Part of that was really leaning into this place of trust. And so renting my house for a year and just lifting and floating downstream wherever I'm led has been a real act of faith. <laughs> so you're part of this group that we keep reading about, I keep reading about, of regular middle-class Americans who buy sprinters or some other kind of vehicle and put a bed in it. Did you put a bed in it? Oh, you bet, with a really nice mattress. Yeah, my, my our son Jules, he has a sprinter. He put a bed, he put a little refrigerator in it, and I think he has a stove in the sprinter as well. Yeah, we've got a sink so I can do my contact lenses at night. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. Well, good for you. That's an exciting year and it's a real adventure. Yeah. So, let's talk let's talk about cancer and psychedelics. Yeah. You and I right now are both cancer survivors. 
Uh, you're aware that I'm a cancer survivor. Yeah. Did you know that? I recall yeah. you and I chatted about that when we spoke many moons ago, or not that many, maybe six months ago, and we talked a little bit about that. Right. But let's talk about yours today, because it's that's what we want to hear about. And we want to hear about right from the beginning. You know, what was it like when you got the diagnosis? Yeah. What did you feel like? Tell us the story, yeah. your story. Well, as I mentioned, we, my husband and I were planning to rent our house out for a year, go to Portugal, do all of these travels. And, you know, to be sort of on top of things, I thought, well, before I go, I should get to the dentist, get my contact lenses. I'll go get my mammogram, all those things one does when you're going to be, you know, gone for a while. So I go through those. I get, I go and get my mammogram and I get the call back. Something doesn't look quite right. We want to do a needle biopsy. Well, I'd heard plenty of people had those and I thought, well, mine's going to be nothing. This is what happens. And they didn't like that. And then they said, we want to send you for this other thing. And, you know, you, you've been through this, you get sort of in the machine of the cancer industry. So the next thing I know, I have the next test, the next scanning, the next thing. And then I get the phone call and this woman calls and says, you know, I'm so sorry, but I, you know, your tests have come back and you have cancer. And I think everybody lives in fear of that. And it certainly gave me pause. But I said, well, can you be more specific? You know, can you tell me like exactly what stage, what kind? Mm -hmm. So she gave me the information. I did my research and it was something called DCIS, which stands for I don't even remember right now, DCIS, it's something in situ. And what it means is that the cancer cells are very contained, I think in your nipple duct, one little, like just very contained. And so what I did was, research. my first question was, how do they handle it in France? Because I think of France as having some of the best healthcare in the world. And I thought, you know, ah. I'm not always sure that we handle things the way. So I did a little research and it turns out that in France, they actually do not do, they don't operate or do surgery on this. They just keep an eye on it, much like they might do with a man with a prostate cancer. They just sort of keep an eye on it because sometimes it never grows, changes, or does anything. But of course, in America, we want to do every single thing under the sun to you and right away. So I went and, you know, had some meetings with the doctors and they said, there's, yeah, there's a chance this might never change into anything, but there's also a chance that this could, you know, grow, become worse. You know, we're suggesting that you do a lumpectomy and radiation and chemo. And here's where all this story gets kind of interesting in my life. So my mom and my lives are very parallel. And I ended up getting divorced at the exact same age my mother got divorced with two little girls the exact same age as my two daughters when I got divorced. This breast cancer diagnosis came at the exact same age my mother got a breast cancer diagnosis. And my mother chose just to do a lumpectomy and flash forward 15 years, it came back and took her life and she died of metastasized breast cancer 15 years later. So when I got the breast cancer diagnosis at the same age as my mom, I thought, you know what, this is my opportunity to do this differently so that I don't keep you know, having the same, I don't want it to come back in 15 years. So even though it was a very small, I, I like to say it was a speck of cancer. I mean, and I think even that people are like, no one says that you had cancer. Well, the way I frame it for myself, I had a speck of cancer and I dealt with it, but I got a full double mastectomy and, and had a rebuild because I just wanted to take my odds down. But Richard, the week that I got my diagnosis of breast cancer was the week that I became certified as a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapist. So I thought, well, this is not a coincidence. This is the universe saying to me, here's a place you can be using this medicine with people. Why don't you work on it with yourself? So I did a heroic dose of psilocybin with a brand new breast cancer diagnosis and really went to a place, I mean, it was pretty scary. It was, you know, dancing with the devil and facing your fears and looking at your mortality. And, but in that journey, I got this really big download of information that was, this is fear, your cancer is fear turned cellular. And this is not just your fear, this is intergenerational fear from your female lineage, from your mother and your grandmother, fear-based patterns of thinking around scarcity, money, partnership, and those absolutely had been issues in my mother's life. I could see them as patterns in my life. 
So I, and I also got information that I needed to go deep into the wilderness, find sacred water. This is what, you know, on my psychedelic journey, what came to me, psychic healing water. And I needed to prepare my body for the surgery by going and bathing in this water. So I come out of my journey and I now feel very empowered that there's something I can be doing. You know, the doctors can do the whole medical piece with my cancer and my mastectomy. But I felt empowered that I knew now that I needed to address some patterns of thought, that I needed to address stress and anxiety differently. So that gave me something that I could be doing. So I felt very empowered. It gave me sort of meaning making around why I had this dis-ease going on. It gave me sort of information about the psychosocial energetic component of my cancer that Western medicine wasn't going to talk to me about or know anything about. But I felt like I got that deep inner knowing through the psilocybin work to help me on my cancer journey. And my husband and I took off in our sprinter van. We went to Utah, didn't know where we were going. I said, I don't know where we're going, but I'm supposed to go to the wilderness and find some healing water. And we ended up camping in this incredible spot at a place. It's called Lower Elk Falls. And if anybody's listening and knows Utah, knows this place, they'll know how magical it is. We got there late in the afternoon and started hiking way into this canyon. And the, the park guide said, you probably shouldn't go. It's going to get dark. You know, people are heading out now. I'm not sure about you guys heading in. And I said, no, 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 we'll be fine. So when we got to the end of this canyon that we were hiking in, you know, gorgeous, you know, just cliffs on either side, a stream running through it, we get to the end. And Richard, there is this waterfall ascending from on high dropping into this just clear crystal blue pool and there's nobody around and I was like oh my god this is this is the place this is the healing water like we have been led here I stripped down jumped on in there and bathed myself in that healing water and and you know just really felt again that as part of my preparation for this surgery and for treating my cancer I felt like I was doing stuff that was so meaningful to me, so spiritual and energy-based. And so we got back. I went in for my surgery. I was telling my doctors about all of this. They're just looking at me like, you know, what are you talking about, lady? But I really got some really clear. Where, where did you have the surgery done? Um, in Denver. In, the, in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, yeah. And you had a, a double, double mastectomy. Full double mastectomy, yeah. And so now I'm on the flip side of that. All is well, you know, and and the other thing that came through so clearly in the journey, I kept getting this message that you need to release these patterns of fear-based thinking and you need to live joyfully. And the word joyfully kept coming through, like just ringing through. And my mother's name was Joy and my mother had died of breast cancer. And so I am not a tattoo person at all, but I decided that when this is all said and done, I'm going to get the word joyful tattooed on the side of my new boob. <laughs> ah, uh huh. Are you happy with your reconstructed breasts? Yes, they're they're like little youthful perky ones that'll take me into. I just turned sixty, and I got some uh -huh. new little youthful boobs that'll be great for the next journey of life. So That's yeah, great. That's <laughs> I'm great. now cancer free. Plus, I've got you know an upgraded set of tatas, so it's all good. And how often do you get retested? Well, I don't need to because what I did, I don't have to have mammograms anymore. I don't have to go for any testing. They basically took my cancer risk down to 2 to 3% of ever having breast cancer come back. So, you know, it's interesting you ask that because most people in, this, in the cancer industry, right, they have you come again and again and again for these tests, which really creates this mindset of not if it's going to come back, but when. So I do a lot of work with people with cancer around how to really work on changing that internal narrative and that fear-based, that fear-based pattern of thinking that, well, they just keep testing because it's going to come back. It's going to come back. And it might not ever come back, you know? That's right. But the other side of it, of course, is that if it does come back, the earlier we get to it, the better the chance we have of surviving it. Right. So so there's a risk of, of letting it go without getting tested. Yeah. And there's a risk of getting tested so often you make yourself neurotic. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Right. I, I understand. Well, so, and in my case, I just, I don't have to wor worry as in regards to the breast because I don't have any breast tissue really anymore. It's like all gone. Right. 
Mm -hmm. In in my particular case, there's a 17% of course, statistically, a 17% chance that it's going to come back. Yeah. So I have to watch. But the good news is that the watching for me is examining my skin because I had melanoma on the outside that you can observe. Yeah. Right? So I get my skin looked at. In fact, I'm now uh, in a program where I'm getting my entire skin photographed. And then they could compare the photographs over time to see if anything on the body is growing. Because again, it's on the outside, right. it's on the dermis. Now, I recall right. that, Richard, you told me that you had a psilocybin experience with your cancer that gave you some interesting information. Remind me what that was. Well, I've been experimenting with, uh, with, with psychedelics for over 50 years. So I didn't start experimenting when I got the diagnosis. Right. I, I, you might say I continued to experiment. Yeah. And... I wasn't thrown by the diagnosis. In fact, at the same time I got the diagnosis of the can- of the of metastatic melanoma, which is a pretty, you know, scary kind of words put together. Yeah. Uh I also got the diagnosis I was in heart failure. So it, so so you know, it looks like one of the two was yeah. going to take me out. Um but I'd already dealt with fear and anxiety and this whole issue of death enough times over the years that it it really didn't throw me. It didn't harsh my mellow, Heather. I just went about my daily life just like I always do and living in as much in the present as I can. And if something were to happen in the future, I said, well, then it'll happen in the future, but it's not happening to me today. And as you know, from the kind of cancer you had, Mm -hmm. which in a way, of course, they're all similar in a certain way in the beginning, which is you didn't feel anything. Right. You didn't have any change of mood as a result of this thing, this speck you had. I had just a little something right here on my temple. It didn't change anything. I could still do my exercise, swim, hang out, make love, you know, go ball, you know, whatever. So having the skills of staying in the moment without this anxiety and fear that we're taught of death it was simply a matter of taking the steps that I could take to deal with these two things that I had and going about my life. Right. So if anything, it was a certain amount of inconvenience. And you know the inconvenience. You got to go somewhere. You got to sit in an office. You got to have them do the thing. I went into these machines they rolled me into, you know, full of lead, PET scans and all that. And, and it takes time. What I do when I go for all that is I just try to learn as much about the technology and the machinery and about the people as yeah. I can and try to make it like a short course in MRI or a right. short course in radio, you know, whatever it yeah. is, right? Yeah. And and try to learn from it because it's the time of my life and I'm there. Right. Now, I want to come back to how did you happen to go for certification to become a certified psychedelic psychotherapist, one of the first in the country. How did that come about in your life, Heather? Well, you know, as I said, I mean, I've been, so I trained to become a therapist over three decades ago. And and throughout my career, I've always been really interested in non-ordinary states of consciousness. So did a lot of training in dream work, always been fascinated in near-death experience, in, you know, guided meditation, out-of-body experiences back in the day. You know, I remember when I was in um, college, they needed students to participate in a study in deprivation tanks. Remember the good old deprivation tanks? So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. They called them deprivation. Eventually, we called them isolation. Right. Because we realized that we weren't really deprived because we had our inner going on. Yeah. We, 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 were, dep- we were cutting off out- external stimuli. Yeah. So we went from stimulus deprivation to stimulus isolation. Some people called them samadhi tanks. Huh. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember the Samadhi tank, but, you know, I'm surprised those aren't making as big a comeback as now everybody's buying their own, like, at-home ice bath. You know, I think I'd rather hang out in something that feels like floating in the womb than, you know, sitting in an ice bath. I'm I'm with you. Give me hot water over cold water any day of the week. Yeah. (laughs) So, So throughout my career, you know, always interested in and leading, you know, I did a lot of work with leading dream dream groups, dream study groups. And I did a training in something back in the day that was um, psychosynthesis. 
which is also oh yes yeah i remember that that was sort of a thing so i've always been kind of chasing down these more alternative complementary medicine and just you know transpersonal humanistic type things have always appealed to me and in my own youth you know in college like many people i had my first psychedelic experience with psilocybin when i first came to college out in colorado and from the get-go i realized that i was a day tripper I was like, you know, I don't want to do this stuff after the sun goes down around a bunch of people. I want to do this during the day outside in nature. So I would leave, you know, all my friends out into the wilderness and we'd take magnifying glasses and journals and we'd just really, you know, do a deep dive into what I now realize is, you know, the whole nature immersion experience, which is what I do use in therapy with people. Um, so when I when I heard that this designation was coming up to get do a year long training to become a certified psychedelic assisted psychotherapist, I was like, well, that's about as perfect for me as anything could be. And so it's really it was a, a year long training. I was fortunate to train with some of the top researchers at Johns Hopkins. You know, Mary Cosimano came on and taught with us. David Brenner, uh, Bronner. Uh, you know, all the all the biggies were on there helping train. Was them. it was was this an online course? It was online with one weekend of um, an intensive in person, but it was it was online with all of these, you know, which would made it amazing because all these people, like the researcher at Hopkins, etc., could come on and do training with our group. So when I completed that training, got the you know cancer diagnosis as well. Somewhere in the midst of all that, I also thought I really want to do a deep dive into working with psilocybin. And because I can't do that legally here in the States, I flew to Jamaica for three months and spent three months leading psilocybin retreats with one of the biggest you know, organizations in Jamaica so that I could really see firsthand these medicines working with people in the group setting, but also people with treatment-resistant depression, pretty serious anxiety, also people that were just looking for personal growth and development, but it gave me kind of a crash course in hands-on with psilocybin. And, you know, now I'm, you know, I, I do work in, I've got a retreat coming up in Portugal. So I'm kind of biding my time till I can legally do things with psilocybin here in the States. Oregon and California and Colorado are looking pretty good, but it's still, you know, a little while out. Am I mistaken in thinking that Denver, Colorado has decriminalized psilocybin? No, you're totally correct. It's it's totally decriminalized. So it's very low on the, you know, on the police's mind to to perp to chase it down, but it's not it's still illegal at the federal level, which makes it difficult for people such as myself with a license because my license could be at risk because federally it's illegal even though by the state it's decriminalized and it's actually now in Colorado and in Oregon it is going to, it's legalized, but they haven't put in the infrastructure yet for how, who can facilitate, does it need to be through a center, who gets the verification, the, you know, the designation as being a center. So all of those logistics are still in the works. So it's a little funky so gray area. So there's still, even though it's decriminalized, and I think, is it legalized yet in, in uh, Denver? Yes. So even though it is, there is still a fear, you, a, a therapist, and that means other therapists, there's still a fear of losing the license. Yes, which is crazy because people that aren't licensed, I mean, I have colleagues who are purposely letting their license lapse because they are safer to be doing this work without a license than to have because, their license. Because then they have nothing to lose. Right. They, what can you do to them? Right. right. What is the, what's the penalty? Right. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how it all rolls out. It's a little. Well, this, this is something that really needs to be looked into yeah. by by state boards and by the national associations because this kind of fear should not be uh, happening amongst professionals who are trying to help. Coming back to your own personal experience, when you said when you got the diagnosis, you took a heroic dose. How many uh, milligrams did you take, or how many grams? Um, I did five grams. Five. And what did you what did you do five grams of? Five grams of um golden teacher psilocybin mushrooms. And they were commercially available. 
Um, I have a friend who by day grows beautiful microgreens for restaurants and then on the side grows lovely psilocybin. Okay. So uh, this was all, you know. Yeah. And the five grams, was that dry weight or were they wet and fresh? Uh, they were we dried and ground to a powder. And uh-huh. then I, you know, always just put them in a smoothie, drink my smoothie. About 45 minutes in, I start feeling, you know, a little tingly and know that they're coming on. And just spent the, what, about four or five hours kind of curled up in a blanket with my eye shades and my music and just doing a whole, you know, the inner inward journey. Um, yes, yes. That's, that's my trip as well. Yeah. And we have something else in common too, because I'm definitely a person who experiences these substances during the day and not at night. In fact, I think the whole thing of starting at night is, is, is ill-advised because, because three o'clock in the morning is when the body is coldest and it's when it's at the bottom of the cycle of the sleep of the diurnal sleep rhythm. Yeah. And during the day is when we're at our strongest. And that's when you, I would think we'd want to take these things and get the most benefit. But the people down in South America got this thing going of starting at nine o'clock at night. They've got all these people in the United States starting at nine o'clock at night. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I, and I, and I just even think just energetically and even just sort of our cultural messaging around darkness and nighttime, it just, it just feels like there's such a, different kind of energy and almost like a safeness doing it by the light of day versus at night for me personally that's and what they teach you at the uh, at this course you took for certification as a time to take it did they have a time that they suggested um you know there was no talk about like the time to do although i would say it's skewed towards day because we were learning how to do it in a clinical and medical setting so that would be you know during office hours really so to speak you know, the area that I'm really interested in, and there's starting to be more research coming, is the way that we have discussed this being done in community, being done in groups, being done in the retreat setting. And that's my major area of interest. And that's the way that I really like to work with this medicine is with small groups to create a container where people have building like, you know, a little mini community of support during the time that you're experiencing these medicines or psilocybin in my case. So I think we need to have, you know, look a little bit more at the research because there's so much that goes on in having other people bear witness for you and hold space for you and share their compassion and have that kind of interconnectedness. You know, you started out by talking about how we're really this species that likes interconnectedness and community. And I think these medicines really, that's why their ancestral roots are as you know, in ceremony and sitting in circle. There's so much power to that. And that wasn't really in my training. The training really talked about this, you know, the the model that is two therapists looking at you on the couch. And, and while there's a place for that clinically and medically, I think there's also a really big need for and power in the retreat and group setting with these medicines. And that's really the area that I'm you know, I'm really interested in and weaving it in with, you know, deep nature immersion and art and all these ways to make it a whole wraparound experience of integration as well as the experience on the medicine. I think that the direction you're headed is the direction the country is going to have to go. Yeah. Because the two therapist routine cannot fly because who can afford that? Exactly. Uh, so if we keep it with a two therapist model, it'll mean only the uber wealthy will, will be able to benefit. And the rest of the 99% of the population or 90% of the population will not. Yeah. And I, I, we, I, I feel I've been talking to other uh, people in our field as well about the same thing. Yeah. And I'm sure that this two therapist business began because of fear of the government that we we, we figured we had to put so many safety things in place in, in order to allow them for them to allow us to do any kind of research. So we put two therapists in a room instead of one therapist yeah. in a room, you know, to make it super safe. Yeah. But gr- group therapy has to be the way this is going to happen. And group therapy is already happening with ayahuasca. Yeah. You don't, you rarely hear about t- people taking ayahuasca alone or with one other person. Mostly it's done in groups. Yeah. And I'm really happy to hear you doing psilocybin groups. Yeah. Yeah. It needs to be, 
and I, and I and I hope that but I was talking about it here and people listening yeah others will will uh, will join in yeah and the and to the ayahuasca yes it's done in groups but the place that they often fall down is that there's not enough integration on the flip side you know I've worked with people who come back from Peru and ayahuasca journeys that feel kind of traumatized because they have such a big experience and then they hop on a plane and fly back to the states and there's not that comprehensive integration piece which is so important so you know that's a really big piece and that's what i love about you know the work that i do is that it's all tied in with creating having that community follow people and having there be that support on the flip side because that's where the work begins the work begins on with the the lovely material that comes up and how to really integrate that that's where that's where the nuggets of wisdom come yeah the integration so you're you're already finding people who are getting back on the plane from South America too quickly and without integration yeah. and without having an integration therapist waiting for them here in the United States. Right. You know, we had a similar thing, Heather, in chemical dependence treatment, and I think, and we still do, which is some programs become very famous, mm. like my program, Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program. It became very famous, so people came from around the country. But because of this conversation we're having, which I knew back then, yeah. I had therapists waiting for them yeah. around the country so that when they came and did the residential component with me at Wilbur Hot Springs, they then got on a plane back to New York. There was a therapist in New York who'd already worked with me and could pick it right up. Yeah. But places, it's, places like Eisenhower, bless their hearts, it's well known that people go to the famous Eisenhower, the Betty Ford Center, mm -hmm. and then they get on an airplane and they start drinking on the plane because the stewardess comes over and, or the, excuse me, the flight attendant yeah. comes over and says, uh, would you like a drink? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and there's, so they haven't, it's a similar kind of thing. There has to be the integration or the residential experience gets, gets diluted. Yeah. It gets so diluted. Yeah. And I, you know, and I also think this is a little bit of an aside, but it was something I wanted to, to mention is that, you know, currently I feel like when, when we think about and talk about psychedelics, we kind of talk about there's sort of like two models. We're either thinking about the clinical medical where you're, you know, in the in the office doing a large dose behind your eye shades and with your music. Or you're like going off on some ceremonial thing in Peru or wherever and you're doing it just in like ceremony or, you know, on a retreat in Jamaica. I really am sort of believe that there's going to be this new ground. And this is some of what I'm pioneering right now is that I think there's some smaller doses that can make for some really interesting, meaningful group work where people are on like maybe one gram of psilocybin so that I can lead people into nature to do nature immersive activities with this heightened sense of, of you know, open heartedness and connection to nature and connection to one another and expanded sense of awareness. But you're, you're in a state where we can be talking, walking, doing guided meditations in nature. So that's a sort of a level of, of this plant medicine that, that isn't being spoken of so much yet that I'm really kind of pioneering in some of my retreats that it's not that you're either full out on some giant dose behind eye shades or that you're microdosing and not even having, you know, any kind of altered awareness, but this really just gentle entree level altered perception that we can work with you in the retreat format doing activities to guide some of that insight and awareness. Oh, you and I think very similarly. We're on the same page because I, th I think and uh, finding the right dose, whether it's the right dose with psilocybin, which we know for group therapy is going to be somewhere between one and five grams, yeah. right? There's going to be a sweet spot and it's probably going to vary from person to person but there'll be a sweet spot. Yeah. I believe the same thing is true for LSD, and I've been experimenting in that regard. Yeah. It's you know it's somewhere between fifteen and one hundred and fifty micrograms. Yeah, that's a big range. Yeah, but it's so it's somewhere in there. Yeah, but people people can handle a lot more LSD than they realize. Yeah. But it, it takes a little practice. You know, Amanda Fielding taught us that when she took a hundred micrograms every day for ninety days. Yeah. She's amazing. You know, yeah. she, you know, that is amazing. Yeah. I, 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 I've tried to match her and I've never been able to keep, <laughs> keep it going for that long. <laughs> that, yeah. that, she, she, she's got the Guinness record on that one yeah. for sure.
Well, it's exciting times, you know. I mean, there, there's still so much yet to be seen about how these are really going to find their way into, you know, our culture and our humanity at this time. But I really believe that psychedelics are reemerging in our culture at this time, and not just as a psychedelic renaissance, but I think it's a psychedelic evolution. I think that these are can be part of what we need to evolve at this point in time with and come out of this disconnect that we have with with nature, with ourselves. There's so much being out of alignment. And I really believe that that psychedelics are coming back into our consciousness to help us through some of that. Yes, disease. I do too. Yeah. Tell, tell us some about the uh, place that psychedelics play in your relationship with your husband. You mentioned before we came online that you're married, that you travel, you've been doing this year of traveling yeah. with him. Yeah. What role do psychedelics play? How have you used them to enhance your marriage? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, we recently had a lovely experience um, with a little bit of MDMA and just a little bit of psilocybin, this lovely sort of blend, and spent the whole day out in nature just hiking and being in connection with one another, with nature. It was the most incredibly awe-filled, bliss-filled day. And we were able to kind of address like some of the little places that we maybe had some, and we don't have a lot of conflict in our relationship. It's really very, very harmonious. But we were able to bring up some of the things that were issues from his past or from my past and kind of just put them up there and see with this incredible sense of compassion for one another and what had been hardships that had helped us form who we are now, but that maybe it created some of our own default patterns when things, when, when we did face conflicts in our relationship. So our relationship is always a work in progress. I mean, I say to anybody that I work with, with couples work, you know, you don't just get married and that's it. Here we are, we're, we've got it. You know, you co-create your relationship every minute of every day. You are co-creating the entity that is your, your relationship. So we're very cognizant and mindful to be incredibly present with one another. And we alternate, you know, guiding each other on these medicines. Um, yeah, I don't feel the need to do psilocybin more than maybe four times a year is about what I need for myself. So I'll do four big journeys a year, sort of quarterly. Tom will hold space for me. And then it's really always brings up for us what we want in our journey of life together but it also helps me recognize and him recognize what are our own personal, where are we on our personal paths? So I really enjoy that. So when, when you went out with your husband and did this mix, tell us the dosage of the MDMA and the psilocybin, please. Um, the MDMA was about 80, what is that, milligrams, micrograms? Uh, micro, uh, milligrams, milligrams, yes. Um, and the psilocybin was a gram and a half. So very you know, kind of minimalish amounts of both of those, but it created this just lovely way to be in connection with each other and with nature. And I mean, it was truly like one of the most open-hearted, blissful, awe states I've been in. And I believe these are states that are there that we have access to all the time anyway, but that these, you know, plant medicines kind of just heighten that, you know, MDMA not being plant, but love molecule. Yeah. And I mean, I honestly, the way that it brings you into connection with nature is just so incredibly powerful. I mean, I walked through a grove of aspen trees and I mean, I was almost out of breath. I was in such a state of awe and wonder at how absolutely beautiful this planet is, you know, and nature is and the perfection of it all. And I, and I wish that, and I hope that, and, and hope that part of my work can bring people into that connection with nature where they have that true recognition, recognition of how truly awe-inspiring it is. I mean, it is all this incredible miracle around us that we get are so sort of take for granted and are blinded to, and it's just also lovely and miraculous. And it's a lovely feeling when you kind of pull away your, you know, your sort of jaded veil and see it through those fresh eyes and just feel it with like this is amazing you're talking about two different kinds of psychedelic experiences one is communing with nature and making a deep connection with nature and this is known that psy that psilocybin brings this out yeah. in us but you're also talking 
about using it for deep inner work and curling up on a ball for five hours yeah. and with eye shades yeah. and looking in and looking inside and doing the inner work. Yeah. So the, so those are both sides of the coin. One side is the outer and connecting with nature yeah. and, and this ball that we live on or in mm. called the planet. And the other is the inside of you and doing that inner work, yeah. which I gather, and I want to come back to that, the inner work that you did in that, was it in, in one experience that you really conquered the anxiety and the fear? Or did you do that continuously then? Did your husband and others help you in integrating that experience so that you eventually conquered the, the fear and yeah. anxiety that so many of us have around death? Tell yeah. us. Well, so it was a very, it was that heroic dose with the new cancer diagnosis was the big dose that I did. And so much material came up. So much material came up for me in that journey. And that was just before I went into this summer of surgeries because I had seven surgeries in six months. Um, wow. Yeah. Oh my word. Wow. Yeah. From May. That includes, that includes the biopsy and the. No, what was that? That was, you know, first taking off all my breasts and putting in these weird expander things. Then one of the expanders got infected, so they took that out. Then they had to put it back in. Then they had to do the reconstruction. Then they had, so I guess it was, it was like five, oh yeah, and then the biopsy. So it was like five, five or six. It was, it was a lot. Oh my word, wow, wow, wow. Yeah, it was a lot. But so I it, didn't it, do any more psilocybin. What I did was during that time, right, which would have been very, very, fear-inducing in many ways, but I was still in such an incredible sort of neuroplastic state after my big journey and then going mm -hmm. into the surgery experience. So I had mm -hmm. lots of time that I was kind of just hanging around. It was before the house was rented. We had to extend the period before we left home because now it's like all of a sudden, uh, wait, you guys, people can't move in here because I got to have all these surgeries and I need a place to be. So we sort of slowed that roll before we left. And but during that time leading up to, you know, moving out of her house and having the summer of surgeries, I spent so much time doing the integration. And I had the luxury of kind of really like hanging around the house and resting a lot. So every day I was doing guided meditations with the music that I listened to when I journeyed, which is a powerful way to do integration, to re-listen to the same audio track that I had done my journey to. So I would do guided meditations, kind of bring myself back into that journey space, did a lot of journaling, a lot of working on affirmation statements to reaffirm new patterns of thought, you know, really con noticing my patterns when I would shift into any of that fear-based thinking, I was creating new internal dialogue for myself and really making that become the new default. Um, and this is what we know. We know that after a big psilocybin journey, your brain does stay in that neuroplastic state. And that is the time that you can rewire and get out of sort of some of those rutted, deeply rutted default modes and patterns of thought. So I had the luxury, I'd say luxury. So I'm hanging around my house recovering from all these surgeries for a summer, just doing intensively working on all of that through cognitive behavioral therapy, through guided imagery, through meditations through, you know, journaling and writing and narrative therapy and really making that very manifest for myself. And I can truly say that when I try to go back and connect to those old patterns of fear-based thinking around scarcity and money and partnership, you know, here I am just traveling around in a van now, but I got no, no fear about any of that stuff. I'm completely in this place of faith and trust at my core, at my core, I don't have any fear around those things. It's like I've released them. Magnificent. Talk to us about journaling. Talk to us about your journaling, please. So I do something called visual journaling, and I love to do this with my clients as well. So I tend to, when I sit down to write, I tend to wax poetic. Like I just, my, my writing just turns into poetry. That's just how I express. And I also, tend to be doodling and doing things with colors. So I realized that it's really something called visual journaling. So when I sit down to journal, it's usually with, you know, lots of colored pens, crayons, colored pencils, and I will do a combination of writing statements, then drawing emotions, then creating like little affirmation statements, writing poetry. It's a 
it's this free flow of thoughts that come out in a way that's very visual. So for me, it's not so much being in, just like when you try to sort of describe what happens on a journey and we use the words, you know, it's ineffable. You can't really put words to it. When I'm expressing myself on paper, it's not always through words. It's often through images and even just the act of doing the doodling or, or you know, writing a word or a couple of words captures for me and puts me back in that state of the emotion that I'm trying to process or the new thought that I'm, you know, really like manifesting and connecting with. Does that make sense? And yes, it does. Everything you're saying makes terrific sense. Talk to us now about, you use the word reframing and affirmations. Talk about how you do reframing and affirmations. Yeah. So I'm trying to think in relation to this specifically, but I'm constantly doing reframing about all sorts of situations in our life. It's one of the most powerful tools we have. You know, with my cancer, for example, you know, my big reframe, you know, so many people said to me like, oh, God, you got, you know, you, you got to had a cancer diagnosis just before you were to like go on this big trip. And I was like, yes, isn't that great? Like I got my cancer diagnosis before I went on this big trip. And they're like, no, that's not a good thing. I'm like, no, it is a good thing. Because had I not, then I would have gone on this big trip and then my cancer would have maybe grown. And then I would have maybe been in some awful situation on the flip side of this big trip. So it was right. such a wonderful thing that I got diagnosed with cancer at the front end of this trip. You know, so it's just, it's the same thing and just a different perspective on it. You know, and also, like I said, you know, it's all, this is like meaning making. So for me, the meaning making, the week that I got certified as a psychedelic assisted psychotherapist, I got a cancer diagnosis. To me, that was like this really wonderful, like aha moment. Like, and I literally was like, thank you, universe. Thank you for giving me guidance on where and how to use this medicine in my career. This is such clear information for me. Now, somebody else might frame that as, God, like I got a cancer diagnosis, but I, at the same time I was going to have this brilliant career, but now I have to live in fear of cancer. No, that's not what my little brain told me. My little brain told mm -hmm. me, oh, isn't this exciting? We're seeing a path of how this can apply to career. So, so much of life is mindset, right? And perspective and reframing these things. And, you know, anybody who knows me will tell you, I mean, I am the queen of reframing negative situations into a positive and not just in some, you know, fake way. Like I really feel it, believe it and am one with it. And that then changes physiologically how I carry things. So instead of carrying it as stress and anxiety, I carry it as Wow, this is this is a good thing. So with the cancer and the you know the my diagnosis and the timing and all of it, one of the reframes was this was like so lucky that this happened when it did because now I don't have to I don't have to worry about getting cancer later in life. I don't have to worry about following the path of my mother and having the cancer come back. Like I've just done this whole I've had the opportunity to change this generational pattern here and how fabulous is that? So that's one of my reframes. And affirmations. And hmm? That's where I was going next. Affirmations. So affirmations Tell us about are, you know, a, a positive statement of something that you want to have happen, but stated as if you've, you've already attained it, stated in the positive. Um, so, for example, instead of making an affirmation statement like, you know, I am excited for, for money to flow into my bank account excited for it too. You want to say it like it's already happened. So you want to live in. So for me, instead of sort of thinking about, well, someday I'll have abundance. I have to do it that I already have it. So part of my affirmations is like, I am so excited about all of the abundance that is in my life. So stating it in the present, you know, I, tr I trust that all of the, you know, financial support that I need, I have. And so I, so that's one of the, and then joyfully, I have, I think I told you, I have three words I live by now, ever since this whole cancer thing and the, all this three words. This is my, my whole life is decided by three words. Is it simple? Is it soulful? Is it joyful? And that's it. That's really like, I ask myself that with everything. Is it simple? So I have so many incredible opportunities coming my way right now 
with the work that I do and partnerships and speaking engagements, so many things. They're all very exciting. But I ask myself, you know, when I think about which projects I'm going to take on, I really just want to do the ones that feel simple, soulful, and joyful. And that, so one, and, and the joyful, as I said, my mother's name was Joy and she died of breast cancer. And I changed up my path with breast cancer via the choice I made. And so I am going to get the word joyful tattooed on the side of my book. That's my mother's, my mother's middle name was Hope. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love joy. I love joy and hope. Both of them are wonderful yeah. names. And wouldn't that well, be fun to a... have a bunch of little girls and have them all run and name them like joy and hope and and <laughs> I don't know what else the other one would be, but that would be lovely. Maybe in my next life. <laughs> You've had quite a ride, Heather. And I'm still on it, a, too. haven't you? And you and you're still on it. It's great, isn't it? This is a really cool thing to be in this human form and have this journey of life. It's an amazing, amazing adventure. It's absolutely amazing. And I talk about, sometimes it's, I, my mind goes and I think about the trillions, the Google of sperm and eggs that never got existence. Yeah. And we, and we got it. Yeah. We were the fastest swimmers and we were the best eggs and we made it here. And we are. Yeah. And we did it. Yeah. And we're here. Yeah. And just be, just being here, just being here. But at the same time, when I say that, how grateful I am, and I am. I think about the 60% of the co people in the United States who are on the edge of losing everything, according to what we hear. Yeah. Who, if they, if they lose a paycheck, they might not have food for their family. Yeah. And that, that could get me crying. Yeah. Even it, it, within my gratitude. Yeah. Because we're not making it work for everybody. Yeah. And I'm sorry to be sort of coming to the end of our talk yeah. on a low note because we were on a really high note. Yeah. Well, but, I, but it's important to recognize that, you know, there are a lot of people that, that are struggling and that this is a hard time on planet Earth for the health and wellness of the humans, the animals, the planet. I mean, there there's a lot of struggling right now, too. No doubt. I'm and and. There's hope for the future, and I think a lot of the hope for the future is in what you're talking about with regard to group meetings, group therapy, psychedelic-assisted, mm -hmm. yeah. because that's a way we could really spread the conquering of fear and anxiety, mm -hmm. which has been sold to our public for hundreds or thousands of years. Yeah. And is so you, you talk about intergenerational fear an intergenerational fear, you know, has been sold and sold and yeah. sold and, and, and there's yeah. so much suffering. And it really is time to turn that around yeah. so that people can live with whatever they're facing, a less fearful and a less anxious existence. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're about out of our time, I see, right on the nose. So now I have something that I've been doing lately that I'm going to uh, ask you to participate in. Okay. Okay. Sometimes you might go to an event or a talk or a meeting or a something. And then when you leave, you're in the car, leave driving away and you have a thought, Oh, I wish I would have said that. I, I, I just, I just thought of something I'd like to, I would have added. Yeah. So what, what I want to do right now is just, we can pause, even though that makes silence on the air, which everybody hates. <laughs> and <laughs> They do. Everybody hates yeah. silence on the airways and we're going to pause give you a chance to think about, is there something you'd like to express that we missed and now's the time to do it? Hmm. Okay. In case there may not be something, yeah. but there might, you're doing a retreat in Portugal, by the way, two of our guests on mind, body, health and politics, and their authors in psychedelics, Jerry and Judy Brown live in Portugal and you might look them up while yeah. you're there. I'll bet they'd love it. Yeah. I would love that. Well, yeah. So I, you know, I rented this, this beautiful big villa on the side of the ocean in the Southwest Algarve that overlooks the sea. It's absolutely amazing. And the model this is not like any retreat that people have done before. It's really kind of like youth, a youth hostel situation, but with adults where you'd have do whatever wonderful things you want to do by day. And every night we have an incredible dinner party sitting around and having conscious conversations. And by day, people, if they're interested in plant medicine, I'm going to customize whatever experience people are looking for. So they might want to just 
experience what it's like to microdose for a week. They might want to sign up and have a deep dive private session with me. They might want to do that one gram and go on a guided nature hike. So it's probably one of the first retreats where it's not one size fits all. It's personalized and customized psilocybin experiences for what people are eager to experience. How do people reach you if they want to, if they hear this and read this and they want to reach out to you? Give them a way to reach you. Yeah, they can go to my website, which is www.medicinewomanretreats.com. Woman singular and retreats plural. Medicine Woman so, Retreats. Medicine Woman Retreats. It sounds fantastic. And and the I know the Algarve. I've been there. Oh, boy. You'll hear those singers. What are they called? Fata singers? Yeah, it? yeah. They have... They have and and, uh, and and Lisbon is sort of a little similar to San Francisco in a way. It is. It is. Well, Richard, come People to my retreat. About I'd love to have you. First week send, in send June. Me. First week in June. Wow. I, have, I hardly ever leave the house. I'd have to reframe. <laughs> well, Heather, thank you so much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thanks for sharing your story. I, I think it'll be inspirational for a lot of people to hear it. Well, it's always and, a pleasure to chat with you. And, and thank you all, dear listeners, for being with us again today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Please.